0: In order to solve climate change and biodiversity collapse, we have to look at every part of our human society. Everything needs to be redesigned with this true recognition that the Earth itself is our core and most scarce resource.
1: John Ellison is a social entrepreneur who has been working with technology since the age of 16.
0: I began hearing about DeFi, decentralized finance, which is a sort of part of the crypto movement that I hadn't really heard of. It's a pretty simple concept,
1: it's a way of securely transferring money without the need for banks or other financial institutions.
2: I mean, generally, this means that people have more control over their money. And this whole idea felt really exciting to John.
1: And so John got to work and worked on this concept called Regenerative Finance, or refi. The idea was pretty simple. He'd use money to regenerate communities and nature.
2: As part of that, he joined a company called Toucan to be their head of growth, and he set up something called the Refi ReFiDAO. This is a global community of founders who are using Web3 technology to help solve climate change and biodiversity collapse.
0: If this were to be used with climate in mind, this could actually address climate change in a way that corporations and governments can't. Welcome to Frontiers,
1: podcast from the upside that gets intimate with cultural pioneers and business innovators that have made their mark on the world. I'm Niku Banai.
2: And I'm Iona Morton. Today, how Web3 could help solve the climate crisis.
1: What John is doing is really important. Of course, the planet needs more help. The model of using a DAO, which is a decentralized autonomous organization, is a really interesting one because it's kind of unproven. There is a distributed element of power and responsibility amongst the group and the community. And decision-making is decentralized. And that, by definition, just throws up in my mind so many things that could get in the way of making this succeed but we're seeing it work. We've seen it work outside of finance. We've seen it applied in other areas. And of course it's being enabled by the blockchain and other technologies, but still when it comes to money and where the money goes and how much people get, you just know human nature. Unfortunately, some people want to take more than sometimes they think they deserve or other people deserve. And so how these systems work is one that is a great testing point, And I'm really fascinated to continue to watch John's journey.
2: Building together a collective approach and putting forward all of everyone in that DAO's energy, channeling it into something good, is actually a really exciting prospect for me because you can see once everyone's involved, if everyone's on board with that approach, and once they have spent that time, had those conversations and got that alignment, I can see people really investing and actually it driving really positive change. So... That's actually what feels super exciting to me, is thinking about that collective energy focused towards a really positive goal for the planet.
1: Definitely. So let's understand how that works a little bit more and how this thing that's called regenerative finance, otherwise known as refi, really can work. It's something we discussed with John.
0: What I saw as the refi space was unfolding was that all of the individual actors in refi were taking positions to call people to act upon their protocol, upon their project. But nobody had really created a space for the movement as a whole. And so I was just like meeting every founder who wanted to build in this space. And there was nowhere for them to gather. And so I was just like, hey, Refi DAO can just be a home for all of these early stage entrepreneurs looking at this really powerful technology to make impact. We opened up a Discord and a, a Twitter and some Telegram groups and I really maintained a neutral position in the movement where we don't buy into a specific blockchain, which most projects do. We don't buy into a specific sector within impact, and we don't buy into a specific Web3 technology. As long as it's Web3 for impact, this is our home and you're welcome.
1: And what's your journey been like creating a DAO? You know, some of our listeners won't understand the concept of a DAO in the first Mm -hmm. instance. So I think it'd be great if you were to introduce, number one, why you chose that vehicle to entice and ignite this movement that you call it. And you're learning today of orchestrating a DAO as well.
0: Yeah, totally. So a DAO is a, a three-letter acronym that stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And so for me, at the simplest form, there are communities of people online who had a shared vision, shared mission, shared values, and they have a shared bank account that they use to further their community's realization of that mission and vision. And I think the reason why we wanted to create space for a DAO is because, you know, there's this kind of like holy grail of very high functioning, decentralized autonomous organizations that are fully transparent, have very good governance, but are very high impact. And I think the world is really trying to explore how to get there. For us, we just felt like that North Star of long-term, you know, 10 or 20-year roadmap towards creating an incredibly effective internet native organization that deploys capital towards the greatest impact was really what we were striving for. But anyone listening who actually knows what RefiDAO is, like, we're not a DAO yet. We don't even have a token. There's no effectively no governance, but we're taking significant and intentional steps towards that in a way that I think mitigates a lot of the risks that other early DAO experiments have made. You've
1: come from running like a classical business before. You are still running a business, but I guess you want to call it like that, but it's a different shape and form of one. What's been your personal biggest changes from running those and leading that type of organization versus the one that
0: you're doing now with your business partners? I um, had a background in running software companies beforehand, so uh, experience to product redesign and acquisition back in 2017 like a SaaS company and then created two more traditional kind of social enterprises in the UK property and food effectively and i think the transition to a web3 native organization directed towards impact is pretty profound i remember in my previous social enterprise i had this mental model of like okay i'm starting this business i'm putting a bunch of capital into it therefore like i should own most of it and anybody else who comes along the journey they're economic interest should be reciprocal to like me setting the foundation. And it was greedy and selfish and didn't really recognize the power of community and incentives and ownership. So where I'm at now at ReFiDAO is like the exact opposite, which is like, how can I serve the community that we have to the greatest degree and empower them with the most radical level of autonomy and ownership, so that they have the greatest incentive to see this organization succeed? And my slice of this pie might be radically smaller, but actually the whole pie itself is going to be so many orders of magnitude bigger because I'm giving ownership to the community. And I think this like mental model of, even if you just look at the capitalization table of a DAO or a Web3 native organization versus like a Web2 SaaS company, these are night and day. The DAO and the Web3 native organization has a majority of its cap table going towards community and ecosystem and holding capital in reserve. And only 10 or 20% goes to the team and only 10 or 20% goes to investors. And so I think this shift towards community ownership is incredibly powerful. And there's a lot of people who are catching on to this, but for me, I think it feels more rewarding and it kind of taps into a deeper reserve of purpose, I would say, as a founder.
2: So John, did you have a moment where you realized this is the thing that you actually really wanted to do with your life?
0: Yeah, I think there were a couple really profound milestones. I think for me, exiting my web two circular economy grocery store is called Goodery, I'm still going today. I knew I needed something that was global in nature and cutting edge. I think that was one moment. But the other moment was really seeing the launch of Climadau, this crazy experiment of a algorithmic stablecoin backed by carbon, and in twelve days reached a billion dollar market cap. And in that moment, I very quickly realized a few things, like one, this promise of making money while doing good for the planet is incredibly powerful and a lot of people are looking for something to fulfill that promise. But two, you know, it's very easy to reach the level of like irrational exuberance, AKA a price of a coin worth $2 selling for $2,000. And you have to be really careful with these instruments. And so when I stepped up as head of growth at Tucan, like I knew that it was an interim stint because I am a founder and like I came in to help them. But that transition from like leading growth at Tucan, working on a specific protocol towards jumping in full-time at RefiDAO was a little bit more smooth. It didn't have a kind of rapid like, okay, here it is. But there was just a point at which I recognized, okay, Tucan's done its job for me and it's in a good place. We've Raised around, we've got 30-plus full-time employees, and now I can go and do what I'm really called to do, just grow this movement as a whole.
2: It's interesting to hear you describe that need for something that makes people money and is financially rewarding, but also is helping the world and has this greater impact behind it. And I wonder if you come up against criticism of the crypto industry and people that see it as just overly commercialized and purely minded in terms of making money. And like, how do you respond to that if that's something that you face?
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting because the criticism usually comes from the other end, which is kind of more capital, fiscally minded actors who see the desire to do impact and then kind of write you off. And they're like, oh, these are just a bunch of hippies. And like, you know, you're talking about permaculture or regenerative design principles and they discredit it. I think there is a cohort of actors in our community who are kind of like, VC is broken, the fundamental model of seeking exponential returns isn't regenerative at all. And like, we need capped returns and refi and trying to kind of put the limits and guardrails on capitalism. So there is some of that. And I think these are valid questions and concerns. But I think my personal take is sustainable business models that both create exponential value for its users, but also capture an appropriate share of that value is really important for us to actually realize this transition to a regenerative economy. When you talk about impact
1: specifically, what kind of impact are you trying to make? Are we talking about a wide range of impacts across anything that can protect the Earth and our planet, or are you specifically going after one area of impact that you think will have the biggest opportunity to make a significant change. You mentioned carbon earlier on. You know, Is that the thing that you want to focus on, or is it something else?
0: Yeah, so I think impact is a broad term, which you could break down into positive externalities for other people or the planet. And we're not out there trying to do all the things. Our role at Refidao is really building a movement to enable entrepreneurs who are the key actor in this movement to take impact And there's a particular focus on the climate side of the equation for a variety of reasons. Fortunately, there's an incredible industry of academics who've really unpacked the science of climate change. And the folks at Speed and Scale, if people listening are interested in this, have developed a framework of objectives and key results, you know, the kind of management framework popularized at Google of how we solve climate change. And on speedandscale.com, they have a tracker to show, like, here's what we need to solve climate change, you know, reach... 50% emissions by 2030, and complete net zero by 2050. And these are the exact targets that we have to hit across all of the things I mentioned. Carbon removal, food and agriculture, transportation, energy production, manufacturing. So there are some very specific things that we need to solve for, and we can do in a quantifiable, measurable way. And I think We've used speed and scale as the kind of taxonomy structure for impact on our website as we track all of the different projects, all the different founders. And so, you know, on our website, if you look at nature, that's inspired by speed and scale's kind of protecting and preserving nature. And so we're not trying to redefine what impact is. We're really looking for what are the well-defined, accepted, evidence-based models for showing what we need to do to make a difference in stabilizing our climate and anchoring the movement upon that side of the equation because at the end of the day, impact is specific people in a specific location doing a very specific action that makes a difference and we can measure it and verify that it's happening.
2: Personally, having been at The Upside during our journey to becoming a B Corp, which is effectively a business that is committed to putting in better practices for people and planet through how they run their business, I've been really proud to see how we've committed to some of those practices by making adjustments to our policies. And actually, it involves a process of constantly challenging ourselves to think about the wider impact of our work. And I think that's something that like a DAO and like what John's talking about, the whole team needs to get on board with and the whole team needs to put that collective energy towards. So I can really see some similarities to how John is running Refi DAO and actually how the team at The Upside has come together to support some of the better business growth practices that we've been putting in place on that journey to becoming a B Corp. What do you think, Nikki?
1: Yeah, no, I recognize that That there is no question that the planet needs help from every aspect, every corner, every person can do their little bit. And that includes business. Business as a thing always had one primary goal, which was to generate profit for its stakeholders. Now, I think that over the years, what has become true is that business doesn't have to have that as its exclusive goal. It can also operate and use its influence to help people or planet. And that's why, as you know, the B Corp movement was born because it realized that business could be used as a vehicle to have influence in those spaces as well. And I think that people listening to this particular podcast and hearing about DAOs and their influence on the planet, us being a B Corp might be like, oh my God, I work in a large organization, that's impossible for us to apply any of these principles into what we do. And actually, that's so not true. There's opportunity to apply positive influence in any kind of organization. And you just have to start somewhere.
2: And I want to pick up on something specific you said there around how people actually need to be able to feel empowered to make these changes. And no matter how big or how small a change that someone's trying to make within the organization they work in, it's really valuable still. And actually, it might feel quite easy to be empowered within a DAO where everyone is going towards a collective vision, got some shared values. It's actually a lot more difficult to feel empowered in an organization where you're constantly coming up against barriers to having positive impact. So I think that's something that is really interesting about the DAO and really interesting about the whole B Corp kind of movement and, and everyone that's getting involved there. But all of this, it feels like it's the beginning of what could be a really exciting new movement and really driving some of that positive climate impact through the collective power of people.
1: We asked John how he felt about ReFi in particular and its potential and the idea of it becoming a bigger movement.
0: In the same way that Black Lives Matter was a social movement that people felt and heard and saw It was a very material shift in kind of societal consciousness and in the media. I think we're really looking and aspiring to see both the social and technological movement of a similar size. And, you know, our time frame is long. We're talking a a 20-year time period here. But I think for us, there's a few components. You know, we've started as an online community and we've served 300 founders and we've got almost 2,000 people in our community. We've got a lot of weekly subscribers, we've built a sort of really strong, loyal following in a very specific niche. And now for us, the kind of next building block is to create local chapters or local nodes of ReFiDAO in the key startup cities all around the world that already have the best talent, that already have the most liquid capital and are really searching for that opportunity to deploy capital, intellectual and financial, towards impact. And I think for us over the next 18 to 24 months, we want to see 12 to 15 local refi DAO chapters in the key startup regions around the world. And I think for us, this will be a really important foundation for launching a global startup movement because the best talent is meeting together in person. The investors with the most capital are meeting together in person and we really need to bridge that local and global divide in order to really have a truly powerful social and technological movement.
2: That local element is super exciting, and I think it's great to see that transition from something purely online, which so much was, you know, especially during the pandemic, and really, you know, bringing that into the real world. But one thing I'm thinking is, and it's an area that we've been doing this research, and we have different themes that we've been wanting to dig into. And actually, inclusivity is one of them. And I'm thinking, okay, so we're gonna, you're gonna make these local chapters and we're going into these cities where the best talent is and like where all of these things are set up. So I wonder how you think about actually inviting people in that aren't already invested, aren't already engaged and How that balance sits with getting the best people and where the money is, but also making sure that people aren't being left behind from this movement.
0: 100%. Yeah, I so appreciate that question. And I think it's probably the most important one to solve for refi is to build something that's truly inclusive. So we've made a commitment to have a balanced representation of communities from the Global South, from emerging markets, from developing nations in the ReFi Commons Prize. And by setting this quota, so it's either two cities or we do four as a total, you know, like we've got three slots, so we're looking at doing a majority in the Global South or possibly adding another. And I think we really do believe regeneration has to happen in the countries that need it most is a key part of building an inclusive global movement. Because if we didn't set these priorities from the beginning, probably the opportunities are going to go towards the places that have the most opportunities already and have the strongest network effects already. And so I think this is, you know, one of the first things that we're doing is just saying, hey, we're going to commit to have fair and balanced representation from the global South. And the second piece is to actually go and reach out to these communities. And I think for us, This is pivotal and it's a really unfortunate part of Web3 that this powerful technology is basically been used by and for people who already have all of their economic needs met already. So we're hopeful that we can kind of flip that on its head and see something really special emerge.
1: John, do you think you've had to fight against certain cultural currents within the Web3 world and certain Web3 communities in order to do exactly what you just said? Because it's kind of going counter to, like, where a lot of the existing energies are pointing and flowing.
0: Oh, man. It's not been easy. <laughs> like, It's hard. Web3 is predominantly owned by a bunch of upper-class white dudes from the global north who have enough and have grown up with computers at their fingertips. People like me. And that's one vector. But the other vector is this kind of, like, pseudo anonymity to say like hey because we're doing cutting-edge stuff with regulatory uncertainty the right play is to do it anonymously and i think this also creates a lot of perverse incentives i understand the need for it and i totally respect people who want to protect themselves having money on a transparent blockchain has a lot of risks and there are regulatory ramifications and legal consequences for doing this stuff and so i think the sort of global north crypto bro aspect plus the pseudo-anonymous plus the make money for yourself at all costs are really tough uphill cultural battles in the web3 space but i think interestingly enough the like sbf ftx collapses of 22 have actually done a great service for us because we're recognizing like hey you can build a multi-million dollar crypto empire for you and your friends But actually, like, it's all going to fall apart anyway, whether or not you get found out for your fraud or, you know, the natural capital that your business is dependent upon are ripped apart. The kind of long-term consequence of this is clear, which is to say there's 1.8 billion people without access to banking services. They are the market that this should be designed for. And it's a early stage thing, but people like Kevin Iwaki, who's the founder of Gitcoin, and a few others have done a great job of kind of speaking to that very hardcore Web3 crypto-native audience and showing the opportunity of regenerative crypto-economics, as Kevin would say, and impact styles, as Kevin would say. And so we're not the only ones out there telling this story. There's some other great people in the space, but it's very early and there's a lot of headwinds, so we'll, we'll see how it
1: goes. Do you see it the same with women in the space? You know, the research that, you know, that we've done with Aglip, what we saw from the community there was telling us that Actually, a lot of females find that the opportunity for entrepreneurism is really high within web three, and they they say that. However, they feel like they will not be able to grasp or make the most of a lot of that entrepreneurism opportunity that is there, even though they're more excited in it than men were, according to the research that we did. How do you see that with either the base of your community? Is there a good spread of male and female or people that rep- represent themselves in that way? And even founders with impact-based businesses, who are these people? Can you describe like what you're seeing in that area?
0: Totally, yeah. So I think there's where we are now and I can give an honest assessment, which is to say... You know, we have probably 75% male founder representation in our communities now, not as a result of our own doing, but just in terms of who's showing up. You know, we have a deeply inclusive community. If long as you're a full-time founder at the Intersect Impact and Web3, you're welcome. And so there's a long way for us to go. And a similar thing for our kind of geographic diversity, I think having female leadership is really core to the tenant and thesis of For Generation. We did a podcast with a lady named... Nina Simmons from Bioneers, who's an incredible female entrepreneur, and she shares some evidence that show female leaders are far more likely to preserve their natural habitat and to protect their community than male leaders. And this happens in both an indigenous context and in others. And she goes in to talk more about the studies and showing females are less prone towards conflict, less prone towards escalating violence. Like, And she even draws out this historical precedent that actually in the era of like the witching age where lots of our societies took women out of positions of leadership because they were being accused of being witches, that this actually had really deep scars in the institutions of our society that have created a, a deeply unjust structure to prioritize male leadership. And actually it's been to our great detriment as a society that this has happened. So f- for us, you know, we know that this needs to be rebalanced and we do small things every Friday and I do small things otherwise to try and adjust this. But I think this is one of those broader systemic issues that the whole space has to first accept is real and is a problem and is important, and then otherwise prioritize through capital and prioritize through all the different ways that you can invite people to join. And I think there's small things like whenever I'm asked to speak or you know moderate a panel or be on a panel, I'll say, I will only do this if there's a balanced representation between male and females. And I will not be on a panel or moderate panel with all men. You can't do this. So there's kind of small things that you can do that help to get the message across, but it's actually really hard when, you know, you have a very tech-centric culture that attracts a lot of male energy. And so we're doing our best.
2: What is the, the one thing that you feel like we need to see in Web3 to have that hopeful, future and have that real positive impact in the space? What's that one thing you want to see?
0: Yeah, I think it's crypto assets with publicly verifiable impacts attached to them. Whether that be NFTs or fungible tokens, I think we are going to see more and more mission-driven communities using these financial instruments to say, look, here's a piece of satellite imagery attached to this NFT that shows that this forest has been preserved. Look, here's this ERC20 token that represents a share in this plot of land that is being preserved. The amount of assets which are tied to real world assets is growing. This market is growing very, very rapidly. And I think really is the future of Web3. It's like we found our killer use case. Internet native money is not just for speculative games, it's for preserving the real world and taking care of it and protecting it such that people don't destroy it. (laughs) I know it sounds simple, but this is the game that we're going to see as real-world assets on-chain with significant publicly verifiable data to say we are protecting what matters.
2: So, John, we actually finish every episode asking our guests this question. So I want to ask you, what is your next frontier?
0: Launching what we're calling the Refi Commons Prize, which is the first three cities that will incubate local refi nodes is the next frontier for us. We really want to see this vision of regeneration going to the most vibrant startup ecosystems around the world, and to see the next generation of talent take this problem of climate change into their hands, build tools that scale publicly verifiable impact, and use the power of Web3 for the good that it can do. And so I think for me, like I'm super excited about what we're doing Lisbon, but also all the people out there in Seoul, in Tokyo, in Hong Kong, in Bogota, in Mumbai, in Bangalore. Like there's regions all over the place who are getting on fire for this. And I personally can't wait to see what they build with this tech and who comes on board in this next season as we look how to effectively redesign money and heal the earth. So that's our next frontier.
1: I really love today's conversation with John. I felt his energy. I think it was infectious. I think that he brings loads of experience to a space that really needs it. And I appreciate his transparency and his honesty in terms of trying something new, genuinely something new to impact the planet in a positive way. So for me, I found that really, really refreshing.
2: Absolutely, I agree on his energy. It was really infectious. It got me really excited by what him and the DAO are doing. And I particularly liked his response when I almost gently challenged him on the inclusivity of Web3. It was really refreshing to hear how they're looking to prioritize listening to people from the global south, You know, the people that are actually most affected by the impacts of climate change. And I'd actually really love to see how this progresses, and actually how the ReFi community can push to intentionally include a lot of other marginalised communities beyond this geographic factor. You know, for instance, we know that both women and people with disabilities are disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis. And you know me, Niku, I'm always kind of in the corner, trying to be the champion for diversity. So, yeah, I would just love to see how he continues to, to push that and how all these marginalized folks can be involved in the regenerative movement.
1: Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. If you want to find out more about what John is working on, just click the links in our show notes.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of Frontiers From the Upside, a strategy and innovation partner. This series was produced by George McDonough, If you want to discover more, check out our Better Metaverse report. It's linked in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, a colleague, or anyone that you think may enjoy it too.
1: Thanks for listening and see you on The Next Frontier.